0: What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Vios Welcome to Roxy Fever. Today, you're not going to be hearing the voices of Jackson or Elliot, uh, because I put together a couple of one-on-one episodes with my buddy, Dustin Fox. Dustin's a member of the Blackfoot Confederacy in the Blood Tribe, or Kanai, in what you might know as Southern Alberta. And I'm very stoked to have him on, because this is an episode that explores colonialism, hockey, and the Blackfoot or Kanai experiences within it, from the particular perspective of my friend Dustin, which... Uh, means that this is not a pan-indigenous hockey in Canada episode. Um, it's the Ghanai Blood Tribe, or Blackfoot hockey episode. Um, Dustin and I thought of doing the show out together because we were texting back and forth when watching a Flames and Canucks game. And he kept bringing up cousins and friends he knew who played pro hockey, uh, including, wait for it, let's remember some guys moment, Wacy Rabbit. Anyways, that, alongside the stories he had to tell about playing hockey in and outside of the res, was so interesting, and as he went off about Racist Flames fans and Settlers Gone Wild at the rink, I knew he had to come on and tell us some stories, so I'm super grateful to Dustin. He can be found at at Floating Primate on Twitter, and I just want to say he poured out a lot of himself in his stories here, and his words should really be treated as teachings um, that we should be grateful to hear. Um, I learned a lot, and Dustin had great and fun and also not fun stories to tell, so if you're an OxyViewer listener already, expect the same vibe as usual, but one where we're going to shed light on experiences most of the listeners and us hosts are so far removed from. So here it is. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is my interview with my good friend, Dustin Fox. Um, I'd like to introduce Dustin Fox myself, but honestly, I'd rather Dustin int- uh, introduce himself. So, Dustin, thanks so much for having time for this. Uh, could you tell everybody who you are?
1: Yeah, no problem. Um... Well, my name is Dustin Fox. Um, Blackfoot. Um, so, okay. That's how you say hello. I'm Blackfoot. Uh, yeah, I grew up here in Southern Alberta, uh, traditional Blackfoot territory on the blood reserve, um, my whole life. And, I've uh, been playing hockey since maybe whatever age you start at pre-novice. So four or five. Um, I remember skating really young. And, um, yeah, ever since then, I've just been all my life just been a fan of hockey so happy to be here and yeah just appreciating the, the break and from studies and yeah just glad to find time for something else so, yeah happy yeah to be here.
0: no this rocks uh, I've done more work on reading week uh preparing for this than I have <laughs> yeah, for, <real. laughs> for law school uh, for context I, I know Dustin through law school and uh we've been uh we've been doing some really interesting classes together um but we've also been talking about hockey a lot and if you listened to our last episode, you know that we were interested in talking to a Flames fan, and that was uh, It Looks Re- it looks Real Flube. Uh and I made Dustin listen to that before he got here, so he knew the context. Uh, thanks for listening to that. But uh, so we have another Flames fan. Um, obviously, with the season, we play like five games against each team in a row, so kind of made sense to talk to people from the teams that the Canucks were playing so much. So at first, I was like, I think I was telling Dustin about my show a while ago, and, and he was like, bring me on for a Calgary episode and I was thinking about like yeah that'd be great and then I thought I was like oh we could also talk about when you started talk when you Dustin started telling me more about people you knew growing up and like all the hockey you played I didn't know how much hockey you played and I was like this would be perfect to have you on um but I want to start off by asking how much do you love Chris Tanev
1: man my first impression of that guy just playing him around the league he's tough right he's a tough dude and so when he, the Flames got him, I was excited, and I uh, didn't disappoint. Like first ten games, uh, I think they like came in Noah Hannifin. Their first eight games, I believe, ended with a plus six rating, like right out of the case. and they were playing solid defense. And he's been teaching Noah Hannifin some stuff that you could really see come out through their game. So, but lately they've kind of fallen into the trend of like all of the Flames players lately. It's just so inconsistent and so so yeah i really like him so far
0: sweet yeah uh and what about uh the connect goalie we sent you guys uh louis domingue
1: oh yeah <laughs> the guy, the okay that guy's great <laughs> okay how do you like markstrom holy shit man he's our best player like it, it's it's like your management has a good fan base in calgary and so yeah seriously <laughs>
0: I won't ask you about Levo and stuff, but yeah, like I feel like everything on I see about the Flame is just, just Tanev and Markstrom together. Like mm. they seem to be like fused the hip together, even on the ice. Like they're always, mm. I don't know, they're always like strategizing together, and it's like it it makes us so sad. Mm. And I'm like, I'm not even sad that like, like my sadness is more that just management fucked up. Like yeah. we, we could have had those guys for good money,
1: but yeah, yeah, exactly the shitty management. But you know, it's good for us. I'm not complaining. So. It's- mm-hmm. So what, do you, so what do you think about the last three games, That, or I guess four games? That's just been totally consistently inconsistent, like on the Flames part, just Saturday, I don't know what the hell that was. But that was <laughs> <laughs> we didn't either. I have no idea what the hell they were doing. Um, and last night was like a better game, but um, yeah, like it's a like a better game overall, but at the same time, they're just so like, you don't know what they are yet, especially in especially with the season, like the the COVID season, it's like, it, uh, I was listening to flames radio earlier and they were talking about, well, how did these players feel? It wasn't like a, like a, like being sad for the players, but just more like, well, how did, how do you think it would feel just going to the rink and then back to the hotel and just mm-hmm. doing it consistently and then playing the same opponent, like game after game.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to judge, especially how good these players are and like, how they feel so far but everyone's going through that right it's like yeah every, so i guess who could who's like the most resilient team out there so. mm-hmm. and
0: it's pretty good to have a goalie like him oh, to, yeah. if you want to be resilient like for us we we just the top six is so inconsistent our defense like we put everything on quinn hughes which is not not what you want to do to a guy who's pretty much in a sophomore season basically mm-hmm. um putting it all in like a 21 year old's hands like Actually, last game, uh, the, ga- the game where the Canucks lost in overtime to the Flames like 20 seconds in after that wild best for goal uh, Flub the guest from the last episode, he DM'd us being like, this is exactly like, I don't know if you remember the 2004 Canucks-Calgary series. Um, yeah. It's exactly like game seven in that series where Matt Cook scores with 1.2 left. yeah, and But they're still... They're still shorthanded when they go into overtime and then bam, like while Ed Jovanovsky is like uh nervous uh in the penalty box, then Calgary just oh my God, cleans it up. <laughs> just like nips it all in the bud.
1: Good times. I remember that. So <laughs> shit. Those are great. Like those some great hockey. Damn how it. old how old were you during that series? I was like a oh, ten or eleven.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah. Okay, I'm, yeah, we're the same age, Yeah, yeah
1: and so I remember being in my living room just staying up and my fucking dad and my brother, we just went nuts and I'm good times going to Calgary red mile. Like that was, it's <laughs> like just chasing the flames. Fans have just been chasing the dragon ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Where could we go party on 17th consistently? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What,
0: was, what was it like on the red mile? I mean, you had, you had four rounds to experience that.
1: Yeah. And like I remember like I was only ten or eleven, but I remember going down there with some like my parents on the Tampa series and the San Jose series. And um it was nuts. Like it was just they shut the whole street down and it was nothing but flames jerseys all the way. And that's when uh like Mike Commodore was like yeah. a huge fan favorite, right? And yeah, just like some of those guys you never even hear from again. But like Martin Jelena, right? Our mm-hmm, hero. Mm-hmm he's still my favorite player of all time was Iggy. And so mm. like, yeah, just such good memories from there. And I just remember like the people in Calgary were so happy, like being so friendly to one another. And ever since then, he's chasing that dragon.
0: <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, the Jelena thing, like was so bitter for us. Cause he was a Canucks kind of legend before. And then he just wipes us in that series. Like, I don't even remember like again, being like that, like he was really important in that series, but like, he didn't stand out to me outside of like fighting Oland all the time. Yeah. Um, but it was like yeah, it was Kippersoff and uh yeah, I was gonna say earlier when you talked about Markstrom that he's like your first really good goalie since Kippersoff, right?
1: Yeah. That yeah. scares me. <laughs> that's one like one thing right now Flames the Flames could depend on, right? He's the only thing being consistent and how many shots did you guys put up on Saturday, well, like we, four,
0: 46 I, 45 46 on saturday or something but i mean still we won 3-1 or something right yeah like that's still how good
1: Marstrom is i <laughs> know yeah, that's and it's like yeah and it's just you haven't we haven't had anything that reliable in net for i remember when iggy left and i kind of stopped playing hockey around that time like 2012 i think we had like orio Ortio and like Carrie Ramo, in that. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. it was like, holy shit, like the hell, <laughs> this organization is in trouble.
0: <laughs> yeah, the, Can- the Canucks had like good moments for a bit because you guys didn't, you and Edmonton didn't have any good goalies between like 2006 and now. I mean, mm-hmm. Edmonton still doesn't have good goaltending, but um, there's always like a chance for us if we played, if we
1: played you guys. Um, but it's like Brandon Elliott, who took us, I think he was our goalie on that run in 20. 20- 14? The twenty fifteen, twenty fifteen run, yeah, 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 and then he laid a couple eggs and just disappeared. So like, I don't know. <laughs> like, so those are the kind of goalies we would get since Kipper. So, kind of thank the Vancouver management for giving us maybe a taste of the dragon again. So, thank you.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if anything, if anything takes you far, it's gonna be it's gonna be Marks from for sure. And Tanev. I mean, if Tanev wasn't there, those shots would have been at like sixty.
1: So, yeah,
0: but he blocks everything.
1: Like I I would always think like guys who block shots like that they're kind of a liability cuz they like screen the goalie so much but when you learn it like that guy it's like man. Yeah, <laughs> this, this guy's so good at it, so.
0: Yeah, we like I would always like flinch whenever he'd very clearly try to block a shot but he he was the most depend- dependable person on that. And the, the other thing about him we were talking about last time is yeah, his the contracts like that's the only that's the other side of the con uh, the conversation when we talk about those having let those guys go it's like okay hey, would we have taken the money but i mean with Tanev, you kind of have an out clause there because he gets he gets injured um so you might not even need to pay for him that much so it's it's kind of like it's a great situation for you guys and i really hope those like those guys wanted to stay in vancouver mm-hmm. um just makes me even more mad so uh yeah take care of them
1: i think we will Uh, hopefully well i don't know i don't know if we will you're allowing him 50 shots a night so i don't know
0: (laughs) yeah yeah well you had some really exciting news and so i wanted to turn this over into talking about your experiences um and feel free to bring up the canucks anytime also in the flames throughout all this like i'll be asking about your experience like as a flames as an flames fan and like what that's like like being part of a community with uh a lot of people you might not like otherwise outside yeah. of being a flames fan. So we'll get there, but first I kind of want to start off with talking about well what was the big news you had on Sunday? And, and maybe if you could talk also maybe introduce like what your background is and like maybe situate that for some of our listeners.
1: Okay. All right. Well, so just for context, uh Bias and I met at the uh, with suits and protests, I believe like where Mm -hmm. we actually first talked to each other. Yeah. Yeah. and And we were both going to law school, but the program I'm in specifically is the JD JID program, which is like an indigenous law program. And, um, so most of the entrance, like, like the applications and everything, they really wanted to know your, your relationship to the, you know, first nations communities. And, uh, So yeah, I had tons of things to, I had just tons of info to talk about. But then, um, one thing that is always kind of central and especially in academia and now that we're in the reconciliation era is like, like that conversation surrounding like diversity and reconciliation. And so when I was finishing my undergrad at the university in Lethbridge, um, I'm a sociology major. So one thing we would talk about a lot was reconciliation and how what does reconciliation look like? And where I was coming from was always community and lived experience. So I was like, well, our community has been pretty impoverished for the last 150, 140 years, right? And so we have to address that. And Hmm. one way in addressing that is well, what are the big concerns? And a lot of the central concerns are the ecology and just the land use in Southern Alberta. It's mostly prairie um, mm. as well as uh, wild grassland, but <clears throat> the wild grassland is one of the fastest disappearing um, natural landscapes in the world right now. And so one thing our elders and leaders thought about was well, what about bringing buffalo back or like, you know, how would that look, like reintroducing them back into the the grasslands of southern Alberta? And so um, a lot of really great academics around here, um, Leroy Le- Little Bear um, specifically, uh, they got to this plan and um, they essentially birthed uh, what was called the Buffalo Treaty. And um, it was the first international treaty signed in the past 140 years. Uh, but that treaty, the main objective of it was to bring these buffalo back and that was in 2014 and so um it's been a while but just on friday we our community members went up north to edmonton to a place called elk island to pick up 40 um, yearlings of buffalo mm-hmm. and uh, to bring them down to let like release them on the reserve and uh so that happened friday and that has been like for me, seven years, but for some other people, like twenty years in the process, like in the making, right? And so, like just to see them run, like out on the grasslands, and like to see them actually touch the land there was like a powerful experience. And mm. it was like minus thirty out, or like <laughs> minus, like minus twenty five, but there was still a lot of people there, just distancing and just watching from a distance, and it was just powerful. It was powerful. It was powerful, um, it was a powerful moment. So. Now they're there and we're just working on keeping them there for uh for the future in a long time so there's a lot of implications attached to it so so it's very exciting
0: yeah that's amazing uh, if you followed uh dustin on twitter uh what's your what's your at dustin uh, floating primate i believe so at floating primate and we'll retweet some of his stuff um yeah there's some great photos that he took and other people took and uh, you can see the the breadth of the of the buffalo coming off in the in the cold um yeah. but like really gorgeous photos and uh like when you told us because you were you had to leave one of our classes and you told us like yeah some buffalo <laughs> like uh they're bringing some buffalo down uh it's been the first time in a while i did not think it was the first time in 140 years yeah. like, i was shocked when you when, when i saw that tweet a couple days ago mm-hmm. um like what an occasion like what was it like seeing i don't know what was the look on like your parents faces or just elders in the community that were there
1: It was just like none of us could take our eyes away you know like we were just just mesmerizing just having them out there and um we have a caretaker for these for these animals right now and um he came up to us like addressed uh mm-hmm everyone watching and what he said was well these animals are really stressed right now like they've been on the road for mm-hmm. eight hours and I don't know just kind of framing it like that you remember what the point of this was like mm-hmm. to take care of these animals and to bring them back here and so when they were addressing that everyone was really listening and it, it, you just knew that everyone really cares and yeah it was just it was I can't even explain it. I can't even really describe it because it's it hasn't happened like right? mm-hmm. Where it was. It did feel surreal, like it didn't really feel real. And then, now that you think about it, it's like holy shit! Like they're just like a twenty-minute drive away right now, and wow. it's, we'll, we'll be able to watch them now. Like until I'm an old ass man. So. That's amazing. Yeah,
0: you'll always be able to tell people that like you were there when they first showed up, when they were first brought over. Like that's. I'm really happy for you, folks. Yeah,
1: thanks, man. That's, yeah. This was a, that was a powerful, it was a powerful experience. Yeah.
0: So, just for for like your personal context, could or <clears throat> your people's context, could you like explain the name uh, of your people and like the different names and the specific? Uh, um, I don't want. I don't want to say the wrong word. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess take it from here. Yeah.
1: So, um, so I'm from the Blood Reserve, and we're also called like the uh, Kainai. But um, in Blackfoot, it's pronounced Ghana, right? And so mm-hmm. just a lot of people just say kind of, just, yeah. And um, so we're part of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is four other tribes. So we're the biggest uh, at around 12,000 members. And I think we're, I'm pretty sure, about half a million square kilometers. Like we're one of the biggest preserves in Canada. Um, it takes about an hour to drive through. And some reserves up north, they take like five minutes to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, just that, just the yeah, just to put that out there. And <laughs> <laughs> so we're, so the Bigani are uh, one of the other three and the Six Aga are closer to Cal- to Calgary. So um, they would also have, I, I believe they should like form some type of relationship with the Flames, right? Like all these mm-hmm. other teams have been doing like Winnipeg and even Edmonton, right? They've reached out, but it just seems like the flames organization has been the least willing to really. Yeah. And then, so there's three of us in Canada and then the fourth of the Confederacy is, um, across the border in the Blackfeet reserve. Um, Mm -hmm. and so us four form the Blackfoot Confederacy. So yeah, that's like essentially that's where I'm from and it's located in Southern Alberta from about Calgary to Glacier National Park like that landscape is essentially all traditional Blackfoot territory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's treaty seven. Yeah. And that right. was a, uh, so yeah, that's all treaty seven territory. And, um, we have two other tribes, uh, who are also signatories on the treaty. They're the Stoney's, um, who are west of Calgary. Um, they're the closest to Banff national park and, uh, the Sarsi or the Tutsina, um, a tribe and they're just outside of calgary like so um yeah there's like five five tribes i believe who are mm-hmm. signatories to treaty seven and um yeah so that's where i'm from
0: awesome thanks actually maybe tell us more about the flames relationship so have there been attempts or have there been like from one side or the other
1: like i can't really remember like off the top of my head but i don't think they've had any real relationship especially with like indigenous people like I think the last thing I heard was when Travis Hamanick played for us and he mm-hmm. started this program for the flames where he would fly in Inuit families and put them up for a couple nights and then bring them to the game interesting <clears throat> yeah and I believe uh hamnick is Métis I believe and oh, okay. um, he went out of his way to start that and um I don't think it's kept going since he left so that's that was a big disappointment Mm. so yeah and it's just I like that relationship has just never really been there you know what I mean and Mm. then when Ethan Bear started playing for Edmonton he had his um the crease syllabics on the back of his jersey right (laughs) yeah I I really don't like the Oilers but like (laughs) I, I was like so happy for Ethan Bear and how cool it was for their community to Just embrace that, and then in Winnipeg they had a day or an honorary Indigenous night where they had, I think, a local drum group from the local First Nations Creek community and Mm -hmm. sang a song and had some dancers and like really went all out and even redesigned their logo, I believe, to have an Indigenous logo and and yeah, like that, like that kind of stuff is great. And then when it comes to the Flames, we have like an I Heart Alberta Oil. Logo on the ice, and it's like, fuck, man, like, like, yeah, you know, not even
0: the bare minimum.
1: Yeah, and it's like, just, I don't know, they they could be doing a lot more. It's just, I don't know, it's it's part of the culture, though, right? Mm -hmm. It's very strange, especially being in southern Alberta. Like, Mm -hmm. so yeah, and the strange part about it is that we were all Flames fans, like most of us on our hockey team, and we would we were diehard Flames fans, right? And Mm -hmm. and then. Yeah, now that I've, you know, gone to school, like for sociology and just looking at the world a little differently, like maturing, you really see how just disconnected the hockey culture is from even including like in like indigenous people within the conversation and like not the cut, like not the type of conversation that we're trying to change the game or whatever, just the type of conversation that acknowledges kids playing hockey out in the Mm -hmm. right who face this type of stuff like Mm -hmm. every game almost and just and they know that their fan base is essentially prairie kids right and like Mm -hmm. kids from the prairies and they just never have that conversation about the reserves around here and like native teams and yeah and they're like no shout outs or nothing (laughs) damn yeah i know the canucks
0: have done a a few small things i think just because they have a a decent relationship with the development corporation of the local nations, uh, Musqueam, Commerce and Tsleil-Waututh. Like this year, actually, it started. I noticed it's not just with the Canucks, but with other Canadian hockey stuff. Uh, I think when the World Juniors, they had like a a huge presentation from from the community out there. Um, I forgot where the World Juniors were held. Was it Edmonton? Yeah yeah so so there was like uh do you do you remember these like big videos that would go on before the game and it, and i was kind of jarred to hear land acknowledgements on tsn at a hockey game like uh i was quite surprised to see that and then i saw uh at, like i usually have the national anthems muted <laughs> like yeah. I, I don't i don't turn on the game until after or they're just muted until then um but they've been doing some land acknowledgements like some kind of weird ones like they said these nations are happy to share the land for us to play hockey on i'm like all right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> question mark but uh i have seen it spread a bit um and i'm not really sure what to make of that or i wonder i wonder what actually finally pushed these teams to start talking about that mm-hmm. and so that does make what the flames is doing kind of stark contrast like come on yeah. look at who your fans are like yeah. you're the southern alberta hockey team i know so many hockey fans uh who are indigenous from southern alberta
1: mm-hmm. like, come on yeah exactly and i was following the flames like religiously maybe three years ago mm-hmm. i was looking at their advanced stats i was looking <laughs> at the chart. like i was just just in like i was into them yeah and, Um, listening to the flames radio right it's like Holy shit. These guys are just the worst. Like <laughs> they, they, they give good analysis, but then they, it's just so filled with that discourse of like the West and like cowboys. And like they just pushed that discourse so much. And mm-hmm. they just totally disregard and not talk about the indigenous people who are the fans also who mm-hmm. are explicitly like against oil and gas, right? Mm-hmm. And just they kind of make that. In their commercials, and they'll even mention it, like in their broadcasts. So, like as a fan, like a really big Flames fan, like that's that's really hard to listen to, like because it's mixed in with. Well, I just want to know how the goalies are doing, (laughs) (laughs) Like talk about like like, yeah, like where they're gonna dig or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I don't know. It's, It's very frustrating, but
0: yeah, that is such a common like theme in our show. -hmm. Uh I like just us as fans and I and I and I assume like a lot of our listeners, like we're just we're just trying to watch the guys score goals and and they pour down stuff down our throat of like Mm -hmm. like pretty political stuff down our throat. And we're like, we're just trying to enjoy this. And so when we start pointing out how political the game is, uh Mm -hmm. or how the game is presented and all the culture around it, uh, then we're told we're politicizing it. Um and I can't imagine what it's like for a team that I don't know. I don't know much about the ownership of the flames um, and I don't know much about uh, the sponsors of it, but I assume like every skybox is just all, it's all Suncor. It's all, Mm. it's all these companies. Yeah, Imagining them reaching out to these communities while also having the sponsorship from the headquarters of oil and gas, like one of the biggest global headquarters of oil and gas, like they probably don't know how to walk that line. They probably yeah. don't want to even try to walk that line. Like they shouldn't be walking the line because they should be dumping uh, those companies. But
1: yeah. And that kind of leaks into the like fan base, you know, a little bit. And it's Yeah. Just, tell me. Yeah. And it's so like, you'll go to a flames game and you know, everyone will be like, yeah, we're all fans and shit. But then like people start getting drunk after the games and shit. And then they'll go to the bar and stuff. But then you'll see fights between like, it's like racist, Like pretty racist white guys, and then Mm -hmm. they'll be wanting to just talk about like, like protests and like oil, like essentially, like that's where they'll they'll center the argument. And but that'll leak into like even experiencing the game sometimes, like when you Mm -hmm. go in line for a beer, like you'll hear these guys talking about how much they made on like the the line, right, like the rings, Mm -hmm. like the, the pipe, and it's just. I don't know. It's just like, well, shit, I can't even go to the Flames game and like not talk about this stuff. But then I don't know. And I hate to accept that it's part of the culture, right? Like totally separated from hockey, right? And it's like, it has nothing to do with like scoring goals, like you said. And it's, it's very frustrating Mm because yeah, it it makes it hard to be a Flames fan, (laughs) but at the same time, it's like still. It's, it's very frustrating. Like it's strange, right? Like how do you support a team who supports, you know, this politicizing of oil and gas and trying to essentially indoctrinate what the hockey culture to support oil and gas. Mm -hmm. But then like really like when Matt Kachuk starts some shit on the ice. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And it's like you want to separate the two and you want to keep them separate, but then. I don't know. It just gets politicized. And I, I don't know what to say about that. Like, Mm.
0: I think you've said plenty. I also, uh, I'm on the zoom call with Dustin right now. It's great to see him like talk about how much he hates other flames fans. And he's holding the flames mug, (laughs) 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 drinking drinking whatever he's drinking. Uh, Like mood, man. Like (laughs) that is me. Um, Yelling, yelling about politics while like posters of Canuck stuff in my room or whatever. Like, um, like how do I justify this? I don't know. Um, was gonna ask you after this um like we like we have it like we don't have the oil and gas thing going on i mean like i think we have some sponsors um maybe arena sponsors but it's different industries for us it's a lot about real estate um and international trade and 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 forestry um and then we have the owners who we we hate the Aquilinis. um they uh, they exploit migrant workers through the blueberry farms. Uh, they're one of the biggest uh, owners in that industry in the province. Uh, like basically, they their labor is indentured effectively. Like um, the way that they use temporary foreign workers. Um, they're also one of the most powerful developers, um, at least one of the most in-your-face uh, real estate developers in town. And I know in the '80s, we've talked about this before on our show how the Aquilini's were responsible or like one of the leading stakeholders responsible for ending rent control in British Columbia. Um, so what there, there's so much more. So we're screwed over as workers. We're screwed over as people who are just trying to pay rent and, and so much more on top of that. And then they also are reactionary in other ways as owners. Uh, like if you chant loud enough to fire their GM, they will fire the GM. Uh, <laughs> the only reason they haven't fired a GM yet is because COVID uh, there's no fans in the stands to do that, but, uh, but yeah, I totally identify with uh, with having this fan base, with having this hockey culture um, that pours down their politics down your throat. Um, but so something I, I have been thinking about um, and I wanted to ask you about what your thoughts are, are, you know, watching hockey for like 20 years and whatever you see what the country tries to push as the Canadian dream. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the it's the working class white family taking their kids to the rink, getting Timmys, and like that is uh, salt of the earth Canadian. Like that is what working class Canada is. And to hear you talk about how the Flames organization totally ignores this gigantic fan base of theirs, who who. Is in a lot of ways more working class than that Canadian dream image mm-hmm. uh, that is hurting more, uh, but and yet is a huge fan base for the Flames. Like, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are when you see this like narrative of like who the good old hockey family is when and and we'll leave this into maybe you talking later about your like you growing up as a as a hockey player mm-hmm. in a hockey family.
1: Yeah, and especially. Like those fucking Tim Hortons commercials, right? With like the, the granddad and waiting in the truck, right? Like warming up and it's just like, well shit. Like a lot of, a lot of the players i played with, like some of them had that and some of them didn't. Right. And it's just, I think that discourse specifically, um, and I'm only speaking from like my perspective here, Mm -hmm. but some of the people especially in within hockey the hockey like hockey culture um being on the reserve too they would want to live up to those standards as well right Mm -hmm. like um, the parents like would want to just do what essentially um you know like what the status quo looked like right or essentially like another word to push like not to put it like so harshly but in a way those families were also really keen to kind of assimilate in mm-hmm. culture. And so with like my parents, they never really did that. Like my parents, my dad would be like hungover and be like, well, let's go to the game. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> And so, but those parents I noticed who would go out of the way to do that. Um, it would affect the way the, I guess even the way teammates would interact. Like, mm-hmm. um, Like it was awesome camaraderie, right? And playing hockey, like that's just another conversation, I guess, just like the, the kind of friendships you make playing hockey, but just with, within that, that culture, like the, the prototypical Canadian, right? And it's, it gets into our culture, like the, where I was playing hockey a lot. And that was kind of a reflection of how willing some families were to wanting you know assimilate or mm-hmm. not be seen as like other like be othered right like they wanted to be like hey we could do this too right and it's it's a and yeah i guess i never really put it in the, like never really thought of it like that but um yeah some some players would just keep going with that and kind of believe like essentially like actually believe that like they were like the product of canada right and mm-hmm. they were you like Canadian kids. Right. But when they would get to certain levels of hockey, especially, so the, I'm just like one kid specifically is just um, like when talking about this culture, his family was great. Like they're a great family, but, and he was an amazing hockey player. Like he was like such an amazing hockey player. And after like the, the structured like organization of like the hockey team, said when he aged out and that structure kind of left that's when you know the the cultural stuff comes up like that's Mm -hmm. socioeconomic kind of experience kind of comes out when you lose that type of structure and especially in organized sports and so when these like good hockey players would age out essentially they they wouldn't have the capacity to kind of take care of themselves Mm -hmm. so then hockey would fall by the wayside right and Mm -hmm. and yeah they would essentially just stop playing hockey but then you could tell that they felt bad when they couldn't live up to that like tim horton standard you know what i mean Mm -hmm, and and i think that plays a part of that plays a part into that like another conversation of assimilation right like how bad some kids want to get out of their situation and one way is playing hockey Mm -hmm. and some kids make it and most of them don't yeah and the ones who do it's like why do all these athletes like you know have like supermodel wives and stuff right and like that's part and that's part of the motivation especially for some native kids right to like get out of the the situation and just you know be able to live right like Mm -hmm. uh, survive playing hockey like to, to gain some livelihood um but yeah most Yeah, most of the players that I would, I grew up with and seen that happen to. Um, there's a lot of stuff that plays into it, but I think that trying to fit that model of like that family model that Tim Hortons, like kind of Tim Hortons standard. I love that. That is totally part of the reason why they, they would, like they would get, like they would go really far in hockey because of it. But at the same time, when hockey was gone, they, it's like they, forgot who they were while trying to be like middle-class Canadians Mm -hmm. oh and so like some people would lose sight of that and put too much pressure on one side like hockey like put all their eggs in one basket and then when hockey didn't go through they didn't really have much else so then you're kind of lost like you're in limbo like you're like oh shit I thought Hockey culture was supposed to be this way, but when you stop playing hockey, life is this way. And so mm-hmm. I think a lot of kids have trouble like balancing it, especially. Yeah. And it's because some kids who make it, they're great hockey players, but some of them are like, they remind me just like, like just regular ass, like middle class Canadian kids, like who are kind of pricks, you know, like entitled, yeah. like entitled little pricks. Like, <laughs> and so, and so when you talk to players, especially in the higher up, like, in the nhl like if you talk to like these um like native kids some of them have grown up with lived experiences but then some of them haven't right and you could see like i guess that's kind of tied to that discourse too because you never really how would you say yeah like some kids are have trouble balancing that and when you get to the nhl i think you kind of lose sight of well not lose sight but just kind of um have trouble balancing I guess your profession and like where you come up so
0: yeah I saw the I like the the pricks part of that because I I totally see shades of that with brown guys I knew growing up who they would use hockey to get into whiteness and I did that as a fan like Mm -hmm. when I was a kid like I saw all the guys I wanted to hang out with most of them white some of them Punjabi um huge Canucks fans in like 2002-2003 when I was like 9-10 and I was like I need to fit in I got to, I got to join this. This yeah. looks fun. And then I ended up did liking it, but especially like growing up further than that, seeing some Brown guys, like, yeah, I really get into playing hockey and really get up there um, get drafted in the WHL and stuff. Like I talked to them and it was, was like talking to some other white kid prick who okay. was just an asshole to me in high school and an asshole to everybody else and thought they were hot shit. Um, but they're the one Brown guy in the group. Mm-hmm. and I'm just like what's going on in your head like yeah if you lose insight of something and like that it's that's only one comparable here mm-hmm. um but I, mean, I know you did sociology so I know there's lots of other words you could use to explain all these processes and yeah. I've seen your writing and it's it's really fascinating and like for you when you did this your sociology degree it must have been like oh I saw all this in yeah. a really distinct way
1: yeah yeah, it was like a veil was lifted. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, was, mm-hmm. like, these words, these situations that words put to them, and yeah, you know that microaggression thing, and you seen like, just like I was like, "Holy shit!" Like that was essentially every when I would play for this team in carts in the small town it was essentially just you know led by uh, white people. who mm-hmm. so would get into these. Types of conversations. It was just, it was just. They were just so kind of dissociated from it, right? When it was like these realities that some players, oh, I can't make it to the game because of, you know, I don't ever ride. Like I don't, we don't have gas money. Like I need to ride mm-hmm. to the game. And so mm-hmm. some parents, like some, like the team was really helpful in that way. But then, yeah, also just these the underlying culture that would be seeped into us as kids. Right. And it was just like, it was just so passed down from these pretty like white parents who were say pretty racist stuff in front of us. Right. And it was Mm -hmm. just, but you see where these kids pick it up, like these Mm native kids like pick up that, that thing about themselves. And they just, some of them just really didn't like the fact that they would have to talk about native things when just playing hockey. Right. Like, yeah. Some of them just wanted to, separate that like just be like well i'm not i'm a hockey player like i'm not playing hockey because i'm native right and Mm -hmm. so that's why sometimes you have difficulty i guess having conversations with hockey players like that especially if they're not super critical about it like going through because i can't imagine thinking about that like living with billets or something right yeah Uh,
0: could you tell us more about like so when you were a hockey player so you told me before recording that you ended up playing on an all native team, but could you tell us about what it was like, well, not playing like that. And then, and then that transition and, and maybe also just like what the resources were like available for, um, for kids around you for hockey.
1: Well, um, yeah, growing up in Cartson, it's like a town of 3000 a really it's a pretty small town. And uh, the majority of the population is actually like part of the Mormon church. And so it's a dry County. So you can't get booze and you can't like no Tim Hortons there, especially cause like there's no, no caffeine. caffeine right? and so, <laughs> um, wow! And so most of the kids I would play hockey with, which is really interesting because most of the Mormon kids we went to school with all played volleyball and basketball and football. And it was because most of them and their family were associated with BYU in the in the States, like Brigham oh, yeah. University. And they don't really play hockey down there.
0: Right? <laughs> no. Yeah, you can't get a hockey scholarship to get there, I bet, right?
1: Yeah, and so wow. Kirsten was like, the school didn't really support the hockey team. And so we would have to play hockey with the town, which was like a mix between just settlers, farmers, and like Mormon people. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like Native kids were in there. So it was pretty unique because just growing up there, like some of the best friends I've made who were white, or because yeah, there was like z- to know like zero diversity where I grew up. Like it was either Native kids or like essentially white kids, right? And mm-hmm. so, so yeah, and that's where I met some of the like some of my best friends, like who happened to be white, were was in hockey because that comes with the camaraderie part, right? Because like we, we knew we weren't associated with the school and like we would never really be talked about in the school, like these basketball or football teams. So in a way, those kids who played hockey in the town I played, I played in, we were especially close because we were like, well, like we're not really Mormon and we're kind of navigating our way through like a hockey team. Like what are hockey players supposed to be like? But then our parents have never told us of like how to be friends with native people and, mm. and you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So at the rink, you would get like the most diverse experiences <laughs> that like, you could get in a small town like that. And so I was like essentially a rink rat in Cartston. And just because of my position on the reserve, like I was on the, the southern tip of our reserve, which is like across the highway from Cartston. And so like that highway is essentially our border. And so I just had easy access to carts my whole life. And so my friends and I would just yeah, we we would grow up at the rink. Like my friend's mom had keys to the to the rink and we would steal them at night and like like get in the vehicle, drive downtown and then unlock the door and turn on (laughs) all the lights. And we were able to like skate and shoot around like two and three AM when we were shit. I think when we were like twelve or like thirteen. (laughs) So yeah
0: that's sick that's a movie
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that kind of stuff was was unreal but then um at the same time we would play teams like in medicine hat and pincher creek and fort mcleod and these small towns around but we the the native kids we were still having very racist things happen to us like like just instances on the ice with the other coaches, with the referees, with even the fans. Like some of the native fans would get in fights with the other team's fans, right? And it was because of the other team screaming at one of the native kids who were really good, right? And like, Mm -hmm. like, take that savage out or something like that, you know, like just really explicit racism. Mm -hmm. Um, And our coaches and the parents there, they didn't know how to deal with that. Like they didn't, the other white parents there, they didn't know how to, they didn't really know how to approach those situations. Right. And, and that left us feeling like we weren't protected mm-hmm. as in like native players, because our parents could only do so much to where we needed like our coaches to understand like how it felt to be like, like kind of targeted, right. Mm-hmm. And players to like be actually coming after you um that's the coach's
0: job part of it to yeah. protect
1: protect your players and yeah and yeah. so like just the fundamental like just the understanding of like racism like had a big impact on how we just felt like how we were being protected or how we would watch out for each other like on the team and for the most part it was good like most of my teammates would really be supportive like we're just kids right and so they're like oh it's okay like you're we're your friends right and like and yeah that's Hell yeah. It's like those, those are what like helped us get through all those times. Right. But then I guess when we had the opportunity to move to an all native team, it was like we, we all felt safe. Like we all felt safer. And like we all felt like, well, let's see what we could do. Like we could mm-hmm. do without, with feeling safe. Right. And like we never, like we had a lot of stuff, racist stuff happen to us, but we didn't have to deal with it like alone. Right. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Like, team. And so, and that was, that actually contributed to a lot of our success because we would use that as like motivation. Like, they don't even want us to be here. Like, they don't even yeah. like, <laughs> want to lose to us. Like, so, like, let's win, you know? So, Fuck yeah. And this was before all the headshot rules were in, right? And, and so when we would start hitting, like, coaches would, Assign like big players to like take out our best, like, in, like the, some of the worst ways, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, I remember I had a really bad concussion, and it was just because of that. Like, I was playing my ass off. You're targeted, uh, yeah, against this team. Uh, we were really good. They were like the number one team in our in our area in southwest, like southwest Alberta, and um, they had a dude. I remember his name. I think his name is Kurt Rogers. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think he was like seventeen or eighteen. He was like six four because like two hundred and twenty pounds. Like how, how big are you, just so people know? And I'm like five eleven. Yeah, probably like one eighty five, like one ninety. Mm-hmm. This guy was a monster, like compared <laughs> all of us and. uh we had a couple of big boys on our team, but my, like guy was just a gorilla. Like he was huge. <laughs> he was so strong. And, um, he, we found out he was like a recent AAA cut. <sighs> the only reason he got a cut from AAA was because he was out of the county or something. Okay. And yeah. He settled with like playing in like this area. And we, we had like some great series with them, but holy shit, that one game that dude like lit me up and I like, I was so, like, that was the worst concussion I've had. But then I just remember that started so much shit between, like, both teams. Like, because I think we were up, like, four or five one. And there was, like, ten minutes left in the third. And their coaches were just, like, just take this kid out. And I was, like, holy shit. So, like, just targeted shit like that. Just playing in, like, a team where you felt kind of alone in those, like, situations. Like, just a couple of you especially experiencing racism, you just felt safer playing, Mm -hmm. playing like as a team. So there's, I guess those were like the really stark differences. And Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: What's uh, what leagues did you play in? And also, could you tell us about like how that
1: team formed in the first place? Well, it's like, it's not like a huge league or anything. Like we're just, it's like, it's called spud league. It was like Southern Alberta spud league, I believe. That's what it was called. And Mm -hmm. So the divisions are like C, B, and A, right? And so usually all the kids who would get cut from AA or AAA would end up playing for the A division teams, right? And so it was like okay, but it wasn't as good as double or AAA. So we were just a decent league. And uh, we would play teams from anybody south of Calgary. And so there was like eight or nine teams, I believe. And yeah, like I always had a team. But they've always kind of they were always pretty bad, like just growing up and when I was younger. Like most of the kids who wanted to play hockey would go out of town, right? Mm. Because just the the team management and the team structure, they're a little they were more structured than on the reserve. And so that's where we kind of learned how to play hockey when we were younger. Um and then yeah, when we got older in Bantam and we went to a couple of hockey schools, it's my parents just got together and I think there was about twelve or 13 of us who were really close who were coming from out of town. Our families got together and we said, okay, like let's, let's figure it out. And we all signed up and the teams around us, like the teams we left, they were all really pissed off. Like Carson was pretty mad. Like, I can't believe you guys left us. Like, you mm. leave us? like after this long, but then
0: like, well, you didn't was, stick up for us.
1: Yeah. And it was just right. like, well, we just wanted to move like to feel some type of, you know, protection like for mm-hmm. right, and so yeah. When we moved there, like I, man, the crowds were the crowd was awesome. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> they would make the glass shake. Like, and yeah, it was it was the best. It was it was some of the best hockey we've, we've played, and some of the best memories. And so, yeah, that was that was great. <laughs> that was That's a great awesome. Time. So I finished playing in like 2012, 2013 and. I guess just the experiences like on the ice, like actually on the ice and having these really intense games, but then the amount of like racism that would rip, like come out because of the tension. Mm -hmm. That was the type of shit that was like, fuck, I don't even really want to keep playing hockey anymore. If like every intense game is going to end with our like families fighting in the crowd. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like this, even if you're winning, 'Cause you yeah. said your team is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well yeah, we're pretty yeah, we're pretty good. And it was like just like, Well, what the hell, man? We we're just trying to play hockey and then you get all this unnecessary shit coming at you and it's it it does make you it does deter you from playing. You know, mm-hmm. like, like it just it's like, Well, I don't really want to put up with this shit anymore, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: You were when you're preparing for this episode, you had mentioned stuff about how since you haven't played since 2013 and 14 and that was not in an era where as much as it is now indigenous resurgence or reconciliation um was on the minds of anybody or or was uh, was on as many people's minds as they are now Mm -hmm. what do you kind of feel when you look back on that like of how much the conversation has shifted just within the people you know and within hockey culture within the hockey culture that you know
1: Mm -hmm. like but yeah, just from when I was playing, it always just felt like whenever we played, it was like white dudes versus Native guys. Like, this is the Native team and this is the white team. And we're going to... Essentially, our coaches who were like in their 40s and 50s at the time who like a majority of them went to residential school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they would coach. You would see like their attention would rise too. And then it would be like, it would feel like you were so... Like going to war almost. Mm. It was like, it was like, holy shit. Like these are really intense games. But I think looking back on them now, those are different than just an intense hockey game. Like, like we'll watch like flames and Frank, like a Canucks game. And when it gets intense, we'll be like, man, that was a really intense game. Like we'll, we'll be feeling happy about it. But then after these intense games, especially when you would lose, you would feel like you let your whole community down. <laughs> like you let. Like your people down and it was mm-hmm. just looking at it now. I'm like, man, that was such a toxic environment just cause it doesn't just stay on the ice sometimes, right? Like that goes into when you go to school with people, right? Like we're mm-hmm. at school. And so these kids would say some shit to us in school and then it would leak into other ways. Like it would leak into other, it would leak into our lives to where we we're just like conditioned to feel as if we were always adversarial to our neighbors. I knew a couple parents who would, like a couple parents from Lethbridge, the the team in Lethbridge, and a couple of our parents would talk and say, man, that's a really good game. Like, I really love when we play each other. And that was good. But then when we would go to other small towns, some people, like Tabor, like more out east to where the... Like indigenous population just dwindles, like going from Lethbridge to Saskatoon. Okay. Like in the middle of there, there's like barely any real like reserves. Okay. Like, and so when you would go out east, these would be the, some of these teams first experiences with like native people. Like, and so I remember one game, um, we had like some, was it coffee? I think someone threw coffee at us like as we were walking out of the tunnel. I think we were Mm. like 15. (laughs) Jesus Um, Christ. People were like, just calling us like savages and shit. And we had to get like, the police were called to the rink. And they had to like sort out, make sure no one fought at like a minor league hockey game. And these were the teens. So when we would directly play these kids like on the other side, they were the ones saying like some of the worst racist shit you could like hear right but then it was like oh like look who the parents are (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it's like oh like it doesn't that makes a lot of sense like the more you would go yeah like from where we were yeah and we all hated playing there. it was like it was the worst like it was when you would play there it'd feel like you were like everyone just looked at you differently and everybody like all those Tim Hortons families we were talking about, like yeah, they were the ones yeah. like, who just look at us with like such disdain to where they were like, we're going to beat you guys, but mm-hmm. not just on the ice. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so bef- that was before reconciliation, like these conversations are even being thought of. And, and now like that's why I'm so interested because that really sort of like in a weird way now that I think about it, that pushed me, away from playing in a certain way, right? Mm Because I just didn't want to deal with it anymore to where I was like, well, maybe if I just, you know, like maybe I just won't play so I could stay away from it, right? And Mm so I don't know. So when these conversations about reconciliation happened, my first, like my initial thoughts went to, well, how are they addressing it in little prairie towns, right? Like, how are they addressing the situation and like on the reserve and, um, <clears throat> and just with these players who are experiencing so much racism going up through double A AA and triple A and juniors and like what they have to go through. Right. And so that's why we all really appreciate and like are such big fans of like, like community members who do make it to the show because it's like, Oh, you know, what you have to go through like, mm, you know, mm-hmm some bullshit right and so most of the time we're like actually all the time we're really happy for when people make it right and it's the reason we're so happy though is because you understand the kind of shit they've had to go through to get there and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and yeah before reconciliation the these conversations what it came down to was oh you just got to be tough like you got to be tough to make it like you like mentally yeah just because if you let a guy get to you then what you draw a penalty and then especially when you get to those levels you get punished for it right from your team and then then that has consequences like on the way you perform and so Mm. so yeah and that's what it came down to like you just got to be tough like gotta be like get them on the ice right and so that get them on the ice attitude is where you see like jordan tutu's style of play and like
0: Yeah, talk about that. You tell me right before the show.
1: Yeah, like Michael Ferlin style of play. Like, it's, and like, especially coming from like community, like I was saying, um, some of our like shit would get stolen sometimes. Like, we would have to practice with like only like two or three pucks, like, just because shit (laughs) was stolen sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you do that, like, so we got like really good at playing keep away and like, like, we had, like, really good puck protection skills and, like, just that like, <laughs> stuff. And now thinking about it, how, like, fucked up it was. Like, yeah. Like, how, like, we would practice, like, with barely any pucks. But then for some reason, it just, well, not even for some reason, just those conditions you learn to play, right? And you learn to have fun. And so, like, guys like Michael Frillin and, like, Jordan Tutu and some of these, like, native dudes we watched and, like, the dub – or just in junior hockey, um, some of them have like unbelievable hands and like, yeah, you love just the dangles and shit, but some of that stuff is actually comes from like (laughs) conditions of like where we were coming from. Right. Wow. um, That's fascinating. And that's what's, and then another thing was I would always say that hitting is just equivalent to scoring a goal because of the energy. Right. And now that, the headshot rules and stuff like my style of play was just based around like, okay, we need a big hit to like, (laughs) in the moment. Yeah. Once a big hit happens, like it's going (laughs) to change. And what's funny is like, that wasn't just our team, like or our community or where we were from. It was like the style of Indigenous hockey. Like so, and Indigenous hockey tournaments happen All over the country, right? So if you have any, if you have a chance to go to an Indigenous hockey tournament, like go check it out because you'll see some of like some really awesome hockey, (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and it's just fast and it's great. And but like that that style, I guess it is kind of culturally learned because some of our heroes are like Brian Trottier and Theo Fleury, and you know like these players who would play with like in the in the corners right they weren't scared to to be a little chippy and to start some shit and you know to get a big hit but then they also were like hard-working players and so these are the types of players we would all kind of try to wrap our games around and then when you see a guy like Furlan just take over the Canuck series in like 2014 and you're like, oh shit, you know where that came from, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and so yeah, that feeling of like being proud and just like that that pride that came from yeah, just you know, it's lived experience coming from coming from the res and just playing with limited pucks. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is so
0: fascinating to me that people stealing your shit leads to place like certain types of playing styles that you yeah. see a pattern in like, uh, I won't guess that all of them play like that, but, but you can see a through line through that. Like, I'm so excited to like tell the other guys that this is going <laughs> to be on the show <laughs> that, that you're going to talk about this. That's that, yeah. I love, uh, I love these kind of stories. I mean, I, I hate them at the same time. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it really opens my eyes to how much, how much is in the sport, and who's playing it. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was the first episode of a two-parter. So stay tuned for the next episode, which we'll post up soon. But in my mind, there is just as much, if not more, fascinating stories and experiences told about in the second one, from women's hockey uh, to meeting Michael Furland to a mask much worse than the one that we talked about a few episodes ago, if you're a longtime time Fever listener. As always, if you enjoy our show, please subscribe to our Patreon feed where we put up more content, including Canucks Heritage Minutes, which are episodes where we go deep on, in on importantly ridiculous moments in Canucks history. Um, so you can follow us there at patreon.com slash Roxy Fever. You can also follow us on Twitter at Roxy Fever. You can follow me on Twitter at V.A.S.R.N. And you can follow our guest and friend of the show, Dustin Fox, at Floating Primate. And you can send your hate mail to the Indian Act.